You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Hello, good evening and very much welcome to all of you uh, to this seminar, uh, Corruption in Post-Socialist States. A seminar we are very glad to to say is uh, co-organized together with the Swedish chapter of Transparency International and with financial support of Riksbanken's Jubileumsfond. Um, Corruption remains a global concern. Corruption at all states, uh, at all levels of society hampers economic and political development and it undermines democracy and rule of law. In our eastern neighborhood, corruption remains entrenched 25 years after the collapse of the communist systems. But it's also a system that is today global in its reach. Corruption knows no boundaries. It affects the West and it interlinks interlinks democracies and authoritarian states. With us here today to shed important light on these issues, we have Sarah Chase, who is Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Sarah is a well-known journalist uh, and former journalist uh, and expert on many things, including Afghanistan, a topic you have written a number of books on, and um, Alexander Cooley, who is the director of Columbia University's Harriman Institute for the Study of Russia, Eurasia, and Eastern Europe. And among a number of books, most recently you have written this book here called the uh, Dictators Without Borders, Power and Money in Central Asia. And you will have at your disposal about 20 minutes each, and Sarah, uh, you will begin. So please welcome. Thank you, and thanks to all of you for coming out on a chilly day. And I mean, honestly, I I don't know about you, but I'm always so moved. There is so much information that is flooding all of your ears and eyes and brains, and that you would take some of your time to take in some more in person. We're both very grateful. And the next thing I wanted to say is, like, when I get invited to talk about corruption in Eurasia, basically what I do is bring this and crib from it. And you guys have him, so I'm not entirely sure uh, how much I can add, but I'll always come up with something, right? And so I'd like to take us a step back. I have worked somewhat in Eurasia, but I'd like to sort of try to provide a bit of a a overview framing. Um, Features of corruption today, as Martin obviously mentioned, it's hardly new, right? But I do think we're in a period right now where corruption is um, intensified and broadened, and there are some important features I think we could bear we should bear in mind. I don't know how to say the word in Swedish. Could somebody help? What's the word corruption? Does it have the type of moral, of sort of ambiguity that it does in English and in Pashto and in Arabic and in uh, Nepalese, which I can say it in, that, that both a sort of straight material uh, 
uh, uh, meaning, but also a more amorphous kind of moral behavior. Yes? yes, yes. I think it's a very important dual nature of the word to bear in mind. We Americans have become familiar recently with the word compromat. Compromat one normally thinks of as being salacious rumors about, or salacious facts about whom somebody has slept with, for example, or how. Um, but as we've come to understand in America, it may well be that what President Putin has on President Trump has nothing to do with the prostitutes he may have slept with, but rather with his financial dealings. So right there in that word, you have this kind of ambiguity. Um, Westerners tend to apply a very technical decision, um, uh, sorry, a technical understanding of the word, particularly when they're looking at themselves, right? This is something that has to do with, you know, individual bad apples or uh, technical accounting issues. And what I would like uh, uh, another um, tendency we have, and again, maybe more applicable to this region in particular, is we connect it with weak, fragile, failing states, right? Um, I think that vocabulary is also wrong. I think what we are really looking at is the operating system of sophisticated and successful networks. Now, they're not successful at governing. That's not their objective. This is their objective. All right. See, I have sticky fingers, right? <laughs> and we'll discuss the network aspect. But just one last point that I'd like to em emphasize is the amounts that we're talking about. This is peanuts. We're talking about billions. The uh, former head of Transparency International recently said, what, does nobody even bother getting into a corruption scandal if it's not a billion dollars at stake? Um, but let's just talk briefly about network ideas. However, there we go. Um, there's another language that's often used, um, a complex tangled web. There's a recent really good piece of work on Uzbekistan. He's not going to be able to leave it on the floor. You see that? It's really interesting. Thank you. <laughs> that's his, by the way, the Krona. Um, uh, no, it's not, right? Uh, complex tangled web. I mean, it's certainly true when you get down into the investigative layers of these networks, it can really be blinding. You've got shell company after shell company after shell company. You've got cousins and, and gardeners who are serving as, you know, front men for companies. And so it looks very, very complex. Um, but I do think there are some important principles that we can bear in mind. And so I'd like to show you some very schematic diagrams of two countries from this basic region. Um, there's one, uh, Azerbaijan. This, now, the, this is a bad graphic because it implies a separation among the three sectors. The sectors here are blue for public sector, green for private sector, red for out-and-out out criminal sector. But what I'm trying to, the point that I'm trying to make is that these networks are fully integrated across those sectors. So imagine, if you will, that that's a chemical compound, 
not three separate atoms. So the first point I'd like to make, look at the middle, Aliyah Pasheva, uh, right? So family core at the middle of these, um, of these networks. You make your wife the vice president, you make your son the mayor of Dushanbe, you make your daughter a White House counsel. Second point, the small uh, circles on the bottom are meant to imply vertical integration. In every country that we're thinking about here, you know, there are police officers or customs agents or people at the bottom of the ladder who shake people down. And Westerners have a, a tendency to call that petty corruption. But in fact, it's totally wired into the system because that police officer or customs agent owes a part of their money up the line. And that represents a gigantic revenue stream. So in Afghanistan, where there have been um, bribery surveys, it is approximately two to five billion dollars a year in extorted bribes. It's a very significant revenue stream. And so in return for all of this money going upwards, what goes downwards is a guarantee of impunity. And that's really important because it means you need to own the justice sector effectively in order to be able to guarantee that immunity. And I've got a lot of examples of how I came to understand that in the Afghan context. Um, but another way you can think about it or another way that this vertical integration plays is opportunities to steal or extort revenue streams by subordinate officials in return for loyalty to the top. Um, then we can talk about horizontal uh, um, integration. And that's what I was referring to before when I said the networks integrate across sectors that we particularly Westerners tend to, whoops, uh-oh, there we go, that we Westerners tend to hold separate in our minds, be it the quote-unquote licit sector of business and government and the out-and-out out criminal sector of organized crime and terrorists. Um, uh, we Americans can get very excited about dividing between private sector and public sector, right? And, and, and you could argue we can get into very serious fights about which one is worse for your health. But these networks um, actually integrate very successfully across uh, sectors, uh, sorry, across these three or four sectors. They look different in different countries, obviously. So this particular one, I made the blue circle fat because this one really is dominated by the public sector. The Aliyevs and Pasheva really dominate the network. But let's take a look at this one. Another nearby country, Moldova. This is one where the private sector, or oligarchs, if you will, really dominate the network, and the public sector guys are more sort of, more or less doing the bidding of the guys in the private sector. One could argue, looking at Russia, using this way of thinking about it, one could say that in the immediate post-collapse of communism world, it looked more like this, right? The oligarchs were kind of running the show. And then when Putin really takes control, it flips. But it's still an integrated network. Those oligarchs still play a role in the network. It's not just that he's tamed them. He's also using them. Um, let's see, then we can just look at what some of the private sector elements might be. 
So, you know, banking sector, right? In Azerbaijan, it's particularly acute where you've got um, 11 banks, does it belong to the ruling family? Energy sector. In the case of Azerbaijan, it's very clear because it's still a national oil company. Same with Russia, right? What do you say about a country where you make the, the CEO, or mm, sorry, just former CEO, of the largest oil major in the world into your Secretary of State? And not only is that the largest oil major in the world, but it's also a company that has consistently deceived the American and international public in order to pursue a very narrow view of its self-interest. And that includes, for example, about environmental damage, about um, climate change, down to the level of when a gas station blows up in Baltimore, Maryland. Oh, you put up a sign that says closed for... Um, uh, upgrades <laughs> to, the, to the equipment, right? Um, let me go back here and talk about the public side of these networks. The role of government officials in these networks is basically to weaponize their, the instruments of state power that they control and weaponize them in the service of the network objectives, which again are basically uh, money. Um, and that, as I said, the judiciary always happens, in particular public prosecutors, um, but not just, the, the justice sector judges. You've all, I'm sure, got examples of courts that have been packed um, I've recently been working on Honduras where it was particularly egregious. Four out of five justices of the Supreme Court got um, fired in the middle of the night. The new guys changed the constitution to allow for a president to be reelected. That president was just reelected in an egregiously fraudulent election. I mean, you know. Um, and so one could also look at a situation in one of our Western democracies where one president was consistently unable to appoint justices to courts at every level because the opposing party basically um, uh, reflexively did not refuse to confirm judges. And then when um, the current president of that country was elected, uh, the speed at which judges have been confirmed is actually historic. It's never happened that fast. Or you see people going after public prosecutors, the um, you know, public prosecutors or investigators. Um, so here we have energy internal affairs. The, the ministry that controls the police is often very important. As you see here, judicial branch. Taxes is also a critical one, not just because the tax regime brings in revenues for the government, but also because tax audits can be a very effective weapon to use against recalcitrant uh, people in, in these systems. Um, customs, obviously, incredibly important. Um, another one that isn't, doesn't, I don't see it here in Azerbaijan, but I've seen it in other countries, where you have a robust or an effort to have public-private partnerships for infrastructure, um, you often have some kind of an agency that, that, that manages which projects get let out to public-private partnerships. So where you have a large infrastructure project, if it's let out to a PPP, it's then put off budget 
and whatever public funds are part of that partnership are no longer subject to oversight. Um, let's see if, I, yeah, the one thing I would like to just go back and point out here in the private sector is every country obviously has different specific revenue streams that these types of networks wish to capture. And I've seen some, some quite, um, I want to say picturesque ones like dates in Tunisia. Um, but there are three sectors that always recur. One is banking, another is energy, even where you don't have fossil fuels. So in Honduras, I found that the network had captured the renewable energy sector. That was very interesting and was arranging for itself ridiculous sweetheart contracts with the government. And the third is luxury high-end real estate. Um, next point I'd like to make is that these networks, and this is a second, oh, sorry, there's of course the criminal, the out-and-out -out criminal strand to the network. In Honduras, that was particularly visible given its role as a narcotics entrepot. Uh, I do not know enough about Azerbaijan to be able to confirm that drug and human smuggling is part of the network, but I would be shocked if it isn't. Um, then we get to a topic that I think Alex is really going to um, delve into in some delicious detail. The, so, so what I want to say is my, sorry, my diagram fails not only to illustrate visually how interconnected these sectors are, but it also fails to demonstrate how transnational these networks are. So um, we have the topic that I think Alex is going to really illustrate, but what I would call active facilitators in the outside, right? Then we have a group that you might not say they're active facilitators, but um, enablers maybe. So, so in the case of Azerbaijan, you've got BP. Now, I don't know where we put BP, right? I'd love to hear, is BP merely an enabler? Or could you actually call BP an external member of the Azerbaijan network, right? And that would depend, I don't feel like I know enough, but that for me, what I would want to do is get below this layer of analysis to the actual network diagram and find out who's married to whom, who you know invites whom on what kind of vacations and that type of thing. Um, I mean, here we are in Sweden, right? Um, Telia Sonera? I mean, where do we put that? At least, at least an enabler, right? Um, but back to external network members and BP. Let's say the president of a Western democracy is the business partner of the son-in-law of the president of this country, who himself is tightly wired into um, the network of President Putin in Russia. Am I to understand the president of that Western democracy to be merely an enabler, or do I start thinking of him as actually a member of the Putin Aleyev, you know, transnational? network. Um, uh, 
I, so, right, sorry, I was trying to decipher my final note to myself on this part of the, um, of the story. I think you Eurasia scholars who may consider yourself to be the scholars of a rather enclaved part of the world, if you look at this, you will realize that what you're on top of this, this is not news to you guys. You are now on top of one of the most significant phenomena in the political economy worldwide uh, of our generation. So you have a lot to teach uh, those of us who are looking at the rest of the world. Let me um, try to be a little bit quick in just talking about some of the impacts of this. It is not a victimless crime which a lot, unfortunately, of Western businesses who operate in environments like that tend to think it is. We've also, uh, uh, Martin already told us about some of the economic and macroeconomic and developmental effects, but it also leads to indignation. And I said the word that way, because does everyone remember what the revolutions of the Arab Spring were called? They were called the dignity rev revolutions. When you are a poor but proud young Afghan man or Nigerian man, and the police stop you at a checkpoint and shake you down for the 10th time that day, and if you refuse to pay the bribe, they smack you in the face, that's really significant in terms of global security. Because that happens to you enough times, and what do you want to do? You want to shoot the son of a bitch, right? You want to shoot the cop. If you're sitting in, Afghan in Kandahar, Afghanistan in, 19 in 2008, or you're sitting in Meduguri in northern Nigeria in 2009 or 10, there's, there's an insurgency sitting right next to you dying for you to shoot the cop or shoot the judge. As a matter of fact, it takes a lot of self-restraint not to join that insurgency and shoot the cop. So you get smacked by the cop in the face enough times, you're going to go and join Boko Haram. And Boko Haram doesn't just give you the opportunity to shoot the cop. It also gives you the argument. And the argument is the reason this government of ours is so corrupt is because it doesn't fear God. And if only we had a government that obeyed the law, you know, the laws of God, it couldn't possibly be this corrupt. Now, it's easy for us to say, hey, look at the Islamic Republic. Look at what Boko Haram turned into. How could you possibly be so stupid? Got it. But when you're an absolutely furious 19 or 23-year-old Afghan man, and you just got smacked in the face by the police, you're not in the business of choosing different varieties of toothpaste, right? You're in the business of looking for a wrecking ball. And so um, I would just suggest that we all look back at the origins of our own democracy. We have a tendency to think of it as being a, having been a nice genteel affair, but surely you folks living here know that the Reformation in Northern Europe was hardly genteel. It was a bunch of puritanic, militant puritanical religious extremists who were revolting against corruption in large part. Just go back and read the 95 Theses, it's very instructive. Um, so you get violent religious puritanical insurgency. You get revolution across the Arab world in Ukraine. You get um, protests, you know, less violent protests. But right now, uh, mass protests against corruption are the number one cause of the downfall of governments around the world. 
Burkina Faso, South Korea, Guatemala, Brazil, I can go on, Iceland, I can go on. Um, you also get wrecking balls, people who vote for wrecking balls. So you can join an insurgency if you want a wrecking ball, or you can vote for <laughs> a wrecking ball. Uh, and that's been happening in Europe as well as in the United States. And the last impact that I would really like to imprint on all of our minds, and for us to really take it seriously, is the environmental impact. The most important revenue streams are tied to natural resources. And so you have galloping deforestation, mining, fossil fuels. Why do you suppose that a country as nominally intelligent as the United States is, you know, getting on a train going backwards into fossil fuels right now? It's because we're run by a kleptocratic network that is, that is bent on continuing to maximize the revenue streams that they're capturing through fossil fuels. And you know what? Not to be any more alarmist than I've already been, that is an existential threat not just to government in the interest of the governed, which I think kleptocracy is, it's an existential threat to homo sapiens. So with that, what I would, I would like to turn it over to Alex saying, Alex suggested last night that American liberals are a little too hysterical about the Russia problem, and I agree in so far as it's limited to Russia. But I actually think American liberals are not hysterical enough about the creeping spread of kleptocratic practices from the region that most of you are specialized in into the region that most of us live in. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wow, it's, it's going to be hard to continue on from there. Uh, what a great pleasure and privilege this is. Thank you um, to uh, the UI, to Martin, uh, to Transparency International Sweden. It's a real privilege to share uh, this panel with Sarah, whose work I think has been so inspirational, both in terms of understanding the domestic types of networks and the sort of consequences, the high stakes of corruption. I'm going to focus, she teed it up very nicely for me, so as I fumble it, it's, it's purely my fault. Uh, I, I'm going to focus on this international transnational dimension, and this is something that has motivated a lot of my work uh, in Central Asia. The inspiration for the book um, that uh, uh, Sarah sort of held up, um, along with John Heathershaw, was really this idea that somehow Central Asia is isolated, it's divorced from the world, it needs connectivity, right? That's the latest buzzword. Uh, and really going through systematically to point out that in fact there's lots of global connectivity. It's just not the kind we like to talk about or even to consider um, as part of the problem. So I wanna talk specifically about Western enablers and the anti-corruption norm and, and and a little bit more from the academic perspective in terms of actually looking at how some of our assumptions about how we should study corruption has blinded us to the networked analysis that sort of Sarah laid out and to some of the phenomena that I want to flag for you today. Uh, essentially, corruption has been treated as a methodologically nationalist phenomenon. What do I mean by this? 
corruption tends to be viewed as something that occurs within states, right? Poor governance, socialist legacies, informal practices, sometimes political culture, institutional characteristics. Degrees of corruption can be measured and countries ranked and compared. And of course, it's TI Berlin, not TI Sweden, that comes out with uh, the annual rankings. And as amazing as they are as an advocacy tool, right, getting to see who's corrupt and who's not, who's moving up and who's moving down, uh, this kind of methodological nationalism in rankings also prevents us from seeing the connections amongst the countries and how they cross network and the actors who cross pollinate. And so I want to focus a little bit on these transnational actors, right? So at the top of the latest TI rankings, Denmark and New Zealand. Well, uh, New Zealand's an interesting choice, right? One of the only countries in the world that allows nominee signatories of shell companies is in New Zealand, yet they're squeaky clean, according to this chart, right? So again, it takes our eyes off of certain types of uh, phenomenon out there. So I want to just present three very stylized analytical arguments, right? And the relationship between globalization and kleptocracy and enabling this transnational complex. One is globalization provides an architecture of institutions, brokers, and legal practices that allow kleptocrats to launder their ill-gotten gains, right? To essentially launder the money. At the same time, globalization offers a similar architecture to allow kleptocrats to launder the reputations, right? Reputation is as important as laundering money because you don't want to be known as a kleptocrat. You want to be known as a successful businessman, a philanthropist, uh, someone who cares and gives back to the community, a global citizen perhaps. And central to both money and reputation laundering is this role played by international service providers, most of them based in the West, and the trick here is that they commingle their illicit and legal activities. Commingle, right? So <clears throat> what they are doing is perfectly legal. Most of them are actually following the guidelines of their professions. Um, but that is the sleight of hand. That is the inflection point in which ill-derived gains are turned into uh, legal assets. So if we're to think about, and I like this idea of a network very much, a transnational corruption network, uh, what we study usually in political science or economics, if we just look at country rankings, is just number one on the node. We just study the domestic actors, perceptions of corruption amongst politicians, regulators, businessmen who take bribes. But there's this whole other uh, architecture on the network. The international transactors, as Sarah was saying, why don't we study actually energy companies or telecom companies, the multinational companies, agencies who seek a contract or access, the brokers and intermediaries who facilitate the network transactions, the offshore vehicles, the shell companies, the holding companies, special investment vehicles, and the final category would be destination havens, right? Once you've moved your money in this murky kind of way, you need to store it in a place that actually respects property rights and the rule of law, right? And so this is where uh, gains end up in places like New York, London, Switzerland, in banks and real estate assets. Here I want to focus on brokers and intermediaries and offshore vehicles. So when you think broker, this is sort of a visual that sometimes comes in mind if you're familiar with the region. Uh, this gentleman here is James Giffen, also known as the King of Kazakhstan. 
Giffen was instrumental in facilitating a half a dozen energy deals in the 1990s between the Kazakh government and elites and the president's and prime minister's office and uh, major Western uh, hydrocarbons. And in fact, uh, the movie Syriana, right, was modeled on him as this sort of broker uh, kind, of, kind, of, kind of figure. Um, he's accused of violating the Foreign Corrupt uh, Practices Act as advisor to President Nazarbayev. And he actually pled guilty to one minor count after a very long trial in which he claimed that he did all of these things, but he acted on behalf of American agencies and departments and so forth. Uh, and that's, that's an interesting topic in and of itself. But actually, this is a bit anachronistic, even for Eurasia, right? Most brokers don't have these kinds of images as the brokers, the sort of go-to guys. Actually, most brokers um, look like this. Global accounting firms, banks and bankers, right, for instance. Perfectly respectable. And just go back. What do brokers do, right? So firms can't offer direct bribes. Right? Um, and at the same time, to facilitate transactions in certain parts of the world, you need specialized skills and plausible deniability. So what essentially brokers do is that they um, isolate and they buffer right, individuals on both sides of the transaction and entities on both sides of the transaction from accountability. And it blur, blur this illicit and legal uh, type of line. So accounting firms and banks might be two candidates. But here's some perhaps you hadn't thought of. Real estate brokers and trusts, due diligence providers, a multi-billion dollar industry to provide due diligence on transactions. And my personal favorite at the moment, global citizenship providers. We'll get into them in a little while. So let's start with offshore vehicles, right? And we, we know now a lot about the shell companies uh, Sarah alluded to them in light of the Panama Papers. We see the industrial scale in which you are able to purchase networks of shell companies within shell companies um, to camouflage the origins of a transaction and its beneficial owner, right? We actually do have rules on shell companies. The FATF, Financial Action uh, Task Force, has guidelines that if you are the provider of a shell company, you must collect information on the owner, an address, and preferably via notarized identification documents, right? So we have international guidelines. So who follows the guidelines and who breaks the guidelines? Uh, one of my co-authors on a piece, uh, Jason Sharman, designed an ingenious experiment with some of his colleagues in which they sent 7,400 email solicitations to company providers in over 180 countries. And these are reproduced with his permission. Um, and the idea was to test rules mandating that firms selling shell companies must collect identity documents from the customers. From this sample, we pulled out about a tenth, which were fictitious Central Asian entities, right, who were trying to open uh, trying to open shell companies. And uh, the treatment effect here is this email that's varied to either be neutral or to throw in a lot of red flags about corruption. And this is the corruption treatment. So I am a consultant living in Guinea Stan. We did four West African countries, four Central Asian countries. I have a business with some colleagues that is based here. It has grown recently to the extent that the international corporations now become an option that we wish to pursue largely for tax and liability purposes. Uh, and then here's the red flag. 
Um, we focus specifically on public sector consulting for government procurement. We would ideally like to form this incorporation confidentially. And of course, uh, please respond by email as I'm out of the office with meetings frequently, right? So every kind of red flag should be coming up here in terms of point of origin of the emails, what this uh, uh, person is representing themselves at, what their business is, and their means of communication. Right, so according to FATF guidelines, this is what should happen, right? So these are actual responses. Uh, uh, thank you, no thank you, or to our sort of fictitious uh, government official, Rachman Sokola from a US law firm. Not a problem, RS. You should concentrate on making an honest living. You seem like a bright guy. And this is a compliant response, right? And this is actually from a St. Kitts and Nevis Incorporation Services, basically saying, not a problem, but before we do, we're going to need a certified copy of your driver's license, a couple of utility bills, and even here, asking two reference letters. This is what should happen. Here are the non-compliant responses. And these are both from U.S. incorporation services, right? So this is to our Uzbek official, Abdullah Ogorodov. We don't need a whole lot of info from you. You can place the order on our website under starting your company. It should only take 10 minutes, and that is all the information we need from you. Or a response to Kilich Almas from Kyrgyzstan. All that you need to do is to provide the name you want for your new company. That's it. Here's the kicker. That uh, throughout taking all the data, uh, the authors construct what's known as a dodgy shopping count, which is a measure of how many email solicitations do you need to send before you get someone who's non-compliant, who's willing to shell, sell you a shell company. The counterintuitive finding is that so-called tax havens are the most compliant, right? They're at a count of about 25, whereas OECD countries are below 10. Actually, those non-compliant entities are mostly in the US and the UK. And if you look on the right-hand side, the least compliant actors in the whole survey are incorporation service providers based in the US, particularly in Wyoming, Delaware, and Nevada. Law firms are actually quite compliant. This is a visual from a Bellingcat survey of um, owners of Scottish Limited Partnerships. This was broke in light of the Azeri money laundry sort of scandal and new rules that, uh, uh, that uh, PSC uh, filings had to take place uh, if you own sort of one of these opaque Scottish entities. Um, between 2016 and 17, only 30% had actually filed the information out of about sort of 7,000 Scottish uh, shell companies. But uh, the survey of who was identified as PSC filings by nationality is really striking. Number one on the list, Ukrainian. Two, Russian, Belarusian, Uzbek, then British, Latvian, Moldovan. And the rest of the world actually hides other types of shell companies that are registering the PSCs, right? So we see a disproportionate amount of Eurasian origin owners using these offshore vehicles. And then we constructed a different kind of uh, uh, ranking according to ownership transparency as opposed to TI's own sort of criteria. I could get into that. Second area I want to talk about is luxury real estate, right? This is the inaugural Christie's Luxury Real Estate Index, the most lucrative markets out there. This is from 2014. Uh, and nine out of 10 of these are in the so-called West, right? The only outlier is Hong Kong. 
And in another paper with Jason, we looked at all the rules and regulations that guide real estate brokers in these jurisdictions. In a nutshell, in none of these jurisdictions do real estate brokers have an obligation to report suspicious all-cash transactions to governments. None of them. Um, there are different nuances. In the UK, brokers have a responsibility to ascertain the identity of the seller, not the buyer, right? And 90% of new luxury dwellings have been purchased by foreign buyers in London, East Europe, FSU, MENA, and China, right? Uh, one survey by TIUK found that actually over 40,000 properties are held by foreign companies, 89% in secrecy jurisdictions, and 10% of properties in the city of Westminster are owned by secrecy jurisdictions. Um, one interesting way to try and get at some of these processes is, again, through running experiments. Um, part of the problem we face as investigative journalists, as academics, is if we go digging into things that are illegal, uh, uh, we might be intimidated sued, or even worse when it comes to investigative journalists operating uh, in certain parts of the world. So how methodologically can we expose when someone doesn't follow the guidelines or the rules? Well, one way is to create these kinds of survey experiments. Another way is what Channel 4 ingeniously did, this documentary uh, from Russia with cash, where they imitated uh, um, a government official believe in the healthcare sector who said he had a very small salary, but he is getting uh, revenues from multiple transactions all the time, and wanted to see uh, how unscrupulous London real estate brokers would be in their transaction. And the punchline, of course, is that they were pretty unscrupulous. Right? Actually, in the US, um, the National Real Estate Brokers Association has an exemption from the Patriot Act right, from 2001 in terms of reporting suspicious transactions. Investigative reporters have flagged this issue. I think it's now on the policy agenda. Um, there was a set of New York Times uh, investigative articles that revealed a lot of these luxury purchases in some of the mo most well-known buildings, especially Time Warner Center, 200 shell companies among the condo owners there, at least 16 foreign national owners who are subjects of investigations around the world, and 17 identified world billionaires. Now, there has been some regulation. I I'll, I, I can get into more details if you want in the Q&A, but basically the burden of um, identifying the beneficial owner purchases in a few geographic settings, Manhattan, Miami were the first two, not coincidental in terms of thinking about Eurasian buyers. Um, but that again uh, falls on title insurance companies, not real estate brokers themselves. And according to a FinCEN internal report, it was revealed that more than 30% of shell company purchases in Manhattan and Miami involved an individual with a suspicious activity report. So again, the data that's coming out suggests that there, uh, there's severe uh, money laundering that is happening through luxury uh, real estate. And this is a slide I made up, right, to give you a Trump hook. We're always looking for Trump hooks. So you may hear more about this property going forward. This is the Trump Soho luxury building. Um, again, has had uh, numerous Eurasian buyers and LLCs pour money into it. Uh, some uh, are exiled Kazakhs um, with quite extensive um, sort of portfolio. Uh, and sort of this chart details uh, how they used uh, a set of shell companies, uh, so ingeniously entitled Soho 
3310, Soho 3311, and Soho 3202 to purchase three uh, branded condos in New York in 2013. I just want to briefly talk about the reputation laundering aspect of this. And let's talk about residency regimes and agents of foreign political influence, but we could also talk about international cultural network and agents of informal political influence. So this is actually quite new, and it's, it's I think, quite key and still understudied. Um, OECD investor regimes uh, as offering a way for kleptocrats to exit and obtain alternative citizenships, right? Once you've sort of taken the loot, right, you need options, right? You need to be mobile. You need to be able to hedge where you live and perhaps more importantly, where your family lives. So what we've seen, every OECD country now has some sort of investor visa or passport program, but 50% set up new ones after the financial crisis. This is some data, initial data from the tier one visa program in the UK, which uh, in exchange for a two million pound investment, you are given the right uh, for uh, five years residency, after which you're eligible to apply for a UK passport. So this is data by nationality. Who got these tier one investor visas? Well, all, out of 1,600, about a quarter went to Russian nationals, about a quarter went to Chinese nationals, and actually Kazakhs are number six on the list, US, Egypt, India. Kazakhstan, right? And what's going on between 2009 and 2013, right? That would put Egypt at number four. Um, some corporations actually provide services. You don't have to figure this out. You contract them and they will figure out what is the best fit. And so this is an ad from HF Corporation pitched at high net worth Kazakhs about the services that they can provide and the European uh, uh, Europe as an attractive destination. And then two particular jurisdictions that have been in the news lately, Cyprus and Malta, right? Both are part of the Schengen program, and so both are actually lucrative uh, European uh, residency if you can secure a passport. So what do you need? In Cyprus, you need a 2 million euro real estate investment or 2.5 million in Cypriot bonds and stocks. And according to one Guardian investigative report, 400 visas were granted in 2016, apparently overwhelmingly uh, to nationals of Eurasian origin. Uh, and in Malta, you actually have also an investment passport program since 2014, where you need to spend about 800,000 euro. Uh, uh, and again, this has uh, yielded the selling of 700 passports. Finally, let's talk about the global image makers, the global image crafters, right? And so again, London is the center of um, still a hidden but enormously important industry, right? Where individuals and firms contract with certain elites, uh, oligarchs, um, to improve their global reputation. And the services they provide include monitoring the media, um, uh, providing advisory services, tracking their social media accounts, um, um, taking up social media campaigns on their behalf and pushing back against negative communications informations. One of the famous, most infamous, Tony Blair's firm, Tony Blair Associates, contracted for five, it's actually not five pounds, five million pounds to advise the Kazakh president from 2011, 2014. And there was a scandal surrounding the firm Bill Pottinger uh, that whose clients included uh, Belarus, Qatar, 
Egypt and Uzbekistan too over a social media uh, scandal in South Africa. Of course, there's another Trump hook, right? So I'll give this one here. So this is the indictment of Paul Manafort, uh, Trump's foreign campaign, former campaign advisor. Uh, and on October 30th, 12 counts were filed, including conspiracy to launder money, failing to disclose foreign agent activities, filing false and misleading Paris statements. Manafort uh, acted as one of these transnational gatekeepers and image crafters, right? Clients all over the world. And perhaps his most well-known client was Viktor Yanukovych, uh, the Ukrainian kleptocrat. And by all accounts, Manafort brought a Western-style image uh, crafting to Yanukovych. He told him, look, you got to speak Ukrainian. You got to wear these style of suits. You got to have clear, simple messages. Uh, and according to investigative reports, uh, Manafort also kept a black ledger in terms of his own fees uh, and payments. So the indictment itself is for Manafort's work on Ukraine, right? In, in order to hide payments from US authorities, um, from 2006 to 2016, Manafort and his deputy Gates laundered the money through scores of U.S. and foreign corporations, partnerships, and bank accounts, actually many of them Cyprus-based. And then pulling it all together, Sarah mentioned Azerbaijan. There's this really interesting Guardian OCCRP investigation that reveals nearly $3 billion scheme of political payoffs to Europe and money laundering, including 17,000 covert payment over a three-year period, targeting all sorts of officials, board members of international organizations, PR firms, and the use of opaque Scottish structures and shell companies to enable all this. So just to reiterate, because I'm, I'm way over time, um, these transnational networks are under research because we continue to view corruption through the framework of discrete national units. Kleptocrats use global networks to launder both finances and their reputation, right? They're equally important. And key to this is this role of professional intermediaries, international service providers, to create this globalized individuals and to disintermediate, disembed the corrupt act from the individual involved and turn them into an upstanding global citizen. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, both Alex and Sarah. It's been uh, fascinating presentations, and I'll, uh, I, I, might, I have a few questions myself, but I actually like to just open up for the auditorium to have a chance to uh, give you some uh, uh, feedback or, or questions uh, on what they've just heard. Um, do we have microphones here? Yes, perfect. And uh, any questions from the auditorium? There's one right there. I see one hand, yes. My question is, does anyone see the extra 20 bucks that... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm missing one. We're actually <laughs> <running> the experiment. <laughs> um, hi, may I ask one question of and each can panelist? Can you please also state your name? Oh, first. hi, my name's Lubna Qureshi. May I ask one question of, of each panelist? Okay, my question for Ms. Chase is, how clean was Honduras before the 2009 coup? And my question for Professor Cooley is, where does Kissinger and Associates figure in this global network of corruption? Thank you. Oh, very detailed questions. Excellent. Um, we also have one more question here in the front. Um, but uh, you, you may uh, rep uh, reply to them in any order you like. Uh, 
then we can take the second question from the auditorium. Very specifically, I don't have any uh, information that specifically links, links Kissinger and Associates to uh, specific acts of corruption. I would say that political consulting is a big part of reputation laundering throughout the world, right? That political consultant services involve both formal lobbying activities, uh, uh, but also informal, right, activities, sort of connecting you with um, editors, right, uh, with consultants. Um, who can actually write some good copy uh, with someone who can actually uh, connect you with a think tank. Very interestingly enough, uh, if you lobby on behalf of a foreign agent, you have to register in FARA. However, if you give a donation to a think tank or a university, we are not exempt from this, you do not, right? And so the standards for this sort of behind the scenes influence are actually very different across different knowledge production and, and institutional centers. So I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, of course, then I'll never hesitate to jump in on everybody else's question. Right. But I do think the university issue is a really important one. The, the image laundering is so important. And look at who gets honorary degrees and things like that. It's, 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 and also, who is sending their kids to what universities and universities who beca that become very focused, again, on the money thing. I mean, this is the underlying cultural element that I think helps drive all of this is how much in this particular moment in history, and not that it hasn't happened, you know, in the past, um, money has become sort of the sole measuring rod uh, for social standing. And you see a lot of institutions like universities that didn't used to be money grubbers that have become, and if they were paying their professors, it would be one thing, but any, anyway, so... Um, uh, on Honduras, and there's actually somebody sitting right back there with a green scarf around her neck who contributed significant work on the, on the Honduras effort. So she could probably answer this question better than I could. But what I would submit is that you certainly had a lot of corruption in Honduras prior to 2009. What's quite interesting, there was a coup d'etat in 2009. And what's really interesting is the president who was ejected from power during that coup and who's been desperately trying to get it back again, um, certainly couldn't be considered an uncorrupt individual. And he very much was part of the gang of this sort of integrated network. What was interesting was that he had started to break ranks with it. And he had instituted some pretty interesting types of new policies that um, at least were looking at land tenure, uh, a couple of other things. And so the coup can be read as the empire strikes back. Basically, the network was not going to let that happen. They were not going to let um, uh, a reform process take hold. And what you got subsequent to the coup was an even more, I would say, tightly run. And even, again, I'm not a Latin America specialist either. I'm, I'm you know, but from what I gathered during the, during the course of doing this research, even Hondurans were saying the current government has centralized, so looks much, so, so Honduras also seems to be drifting from the Moldova oligarchical model 
private sector run network more toward the government run more tightly controlled network version. Interesting. Um, yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> I am Gunnar Lassenante, uh, working for the ABF housing in Stockholm, where I organize internet and seminars. Earlier, I served the Olopalme Internet Center, and I was sent out to uh, Ukraine from '91, about uh, once a year, with uh, two missions. The first one was fact-finding, and the second one to was to find out whether it was some possibility to establish a social democratic movement in Ukraine. And that was, in fact, a rather impossible uh, mission. But I remember uh, from an early visit, 93, I think, I had a meeting with um, a parliamentarian, a professor in uh, technical physics, who was the chairman of uh, the Anti-Corruption Committee of the Parliament. They had such a committee uh, already at that time. And he told me, uh, frankly speaking, Mr. Lassinanti, uh, against the corruption in this country, I can simply do nothing. And if you take the case, you had two excellent uh, presentations and the case of uh, Azerbaijan. But I have particularly followed Ukraine. And I mean, it seems more or less uh, impossible to counteract the uh, corruption system in the country. Yes, I come to the question. Okay, thank you. I come to the uh, uh, question. Because all, uh, uh, almost all top politicians are so involved in, uh, in it. Uh, and 7% of gross national production, as I ever heard, are corrupted money. So my question, two excellent presentations, yes. but what is possible politically and through inter international cooperation to combat uh, corruption? Do we have any ideas? Thank you. Okay. Um. We can sum up, uh, yes, I also have a question here, uh, and uh, also from Mark in the back, uh, and if we can have a mic, oh, yeah. there's a question already waiting, okay. Yes, yes. Uh, thank you very much, my name is Catalina Oriva, I'm from International Idea, and it's just, uh, thank you for the presentations, I was wondering if in these examples, uh, from either one of you, um, if uh, you've also seen in these schemes, uh, well, you, you lay the case very clearly uh, of public tenders and privatization processes sort of in this interlinkage between private and public and criminal interests. So I was wondering about the role of money in politics and uh, money laundering through political parties, elections, etc. And if you've seen this played out in these cases as well. Thank you. Okay, let's take also the third question if that's okay. And then you can maybe summarize some of the replies. Yes, Mark. Yes, thank you very much. That's very informative, uh, very depressing, but <laughs> that's, that's this information. Um, you've mentioned, both of you, uh, Trump uh, several times, and uh, he is certainly someone that's on everybody's mind here, high in our concerns. Could I just ask you both to give summary, uh, maybe pull your thoughts together briefly as to what his role or his administration's role politically is in these subjects that you've been talking about? Thank you. All right. 
Um, we have a few more questions, I'm sure, but um, maybe we'll try to reply to these three questions before we sort of lose tracks of, of them. Um, and you can answer them in any, any way you, you wish. Hmm? Okay. Oh, go, go ahead. Go. You go first. We can switch. Whatever. We can yeah, switch yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I just... Um, let me start with money in politics. It's huge. It's huge in a variety of ways. It can be a um, it can be a money laundering method. It can also be. I, I think we're living in a in a um, era where it's more like power for money than money for power. I think in the past you've seen power uh, money money to gain power. I actually think money is the objective, um, but you know, money for power for more money kind of thing. So it is central. And I would actually say it's the strategic variable. Uh, certainly in our democracies that, uh, that are sliding in this direction, the degree to which uh, there's a free flow of secret money into the political system, that's kind of the strategic variable on the slide. Um, what to do about it? Uh, I've been uh, following a variety of anti-corruption protests around the world in very diverse, uh, very big ones in very diverse countries. So Brazil, Guatemala, uh, Burkina Faso, but Romania, South Korea. I mean, it's pretty interesting. And what I found is that, uh, you know, indignation has caused some really significant impacts. Uh, however, a network is an incredibly resilient formation. And so even where you have toppled heads of state, which is you know, kind of the highest measure of success for a popular movement, the actual impact on the, on the network has been almost negligible. Therefore, what I think, and, and I'm talking not just about from the outside, from the outside looking at a corrupt country like Ukraine, the outside world needs to take it seriously. It's that simple. I mean, we just don't, and we can talk in more detail about that, but I have never, ever seen supposedly uncorrupt countries that are operating on a corrupt, um, I want to say developing or post-Soviet or, po you know, whatever country ever take the issue of corruption really seriously. Oh, they do plenty of box ticking, but they don't do stuff like crack down on their own real estate and their own um, uh, whatever, uh, uh, registered agents or, or other facilitators. They're unwilling to reduce the revenue streams coming into them from this corruption, and they are certainly unwilling to coordinate and put, they're not even willing to do, um, exercises. I can't tell you how many governments I have gone to their sort of security services and foreign ministries to say, look, just do a tabletop exercise about what it would look like in your relations with country X if you were to prioritize anti-corruption uh, imperatives, and they won't even do the exercise, let alone do it in real life. Um, but if you are uh, living inside such a country, I think that, which frankly we all are to a certain extent. I mean, maybe not to the extent that um, that some are, but the the first thing we all have to do is not not mistake the figurehead at the top of the network for the network itself. These are systemic problems. So yes, you need to 
take actions that will alter the incentive structure operating on people who gain power, but don't think that by putting one or two of them in jail or even imposing significant fines on businesses that you will take down the network. And that means you need a broad spectrum effort that is both bringing on board ordinary people so I've also had Americans say, God, like people in Congress, God, how do we get the American people worried about corruption now that there's all this corruption happening on, you know, on the part of Trump? And I'm saying, are you kidding me? We have half the American electorate voted for wrecking balls. I mean, Bernie Sanders, I don't consider to be exactly the same type of wrecking ball as, as, as Donald Trump. But we had half the American electorate voting for very unexpected candidates because they were so indignant about corruption. But the elite anti-corruption professionals haven't figured out how to connect with that popular movement. And so an effort needs to cross the spectrum. And finally, I would just say, you need to do this kind of network mapping to begin with. Before you begin trying to think about what types of campaigns or actions to take, you have to map the network and look at how is it structured, who's who in the zoo, what are the main operating principles, and then build your campaign around the specifics of your network. The role of Trump, as far as I'm concerned, has been to become, I'm going to be even less diplomatic than I've been to date. I think the guy is um, basically the poster child for kleptocratic governance. And the problem is when the poster child for kleptocratic governance is sitting in the White House, that is a gigantic green light. I mean, we do at least still have some, you know, checks and balances that are active and in place, but he is taking over key elements of state function and weaponizing them, including the tax authority. So you'll notice that the taxes are falling more heavily on certain states than on others. Um, and he is deliberately hollowing out those agencies that might play an oversight role, such as, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, so he is literally doing exactly what I have been mapping in Azerbaijan and Honduras. When that's happening out of Washington, Aliyev, and in fact, he appointed his wife a month after Trump appointed uh, Ivanka. This becomes the strongest signal that is reaching kleptocrats overseas from the United States. And it's, as I say, uh, frankly, an encouragement. Okay. Ah, uh, yeah. So, um, so I, I actually don't disagree with, with anything in terms of, so the, the deregulatory sort of cutback of, of the administrative state and its capacity. I, I do think there's, Another dimension, what's going on now in terms of corruption work and Trump, um, that, you know, you know, in essence is born of Trump, right? And so we're having, you know, more investigative work, more uh, funding of sort of investigative work, you know, ProPublica, uh, you know, Times, The Post, local newspapers looking into these things. So, so, so I, I think, you know, all is not necessarily lost, although I think it is on the timer. <laughs> um, also, interestingly enough, some of the higher profile initiatives have not been rolled back. They're continuing. Um, so, for instance, the Treasury Department's geographic targeting orders on luxury real estate have been expanded now to 10 jurisdictions. Uh, I have a related concern to Sarah's, which is 
we in the U.S. have this extraordinary extraterritorial legal power, right, through the Justice Department and uh, regulations like the FCPA that, you know, say, well, you know, if FIFA is taking bribes, it is our business, right? And these transactions were sort of conducted vis-a-vis, -vis, uh, um, you know, uh, U.S. entities. And for the most part, that power has been used credibly, right? And so I think one possible danger is the politicization of investigatory power and this kind of extraterritorial jurisdiction, right? To sort of go easy on certain partners overseas or go hard on some of their um, political opponents. You could see that happening, right? And that is, I think, a danger. I, I think we're a little ways away from that. Um, but again, as these institutions decay and hollow, hollow out, I think it's a possibility, and, and we haven't faced that kind of uh, that kind of prospect before. You know, I'm reminded of how during the Bush years, um, you know, the Cossacks would send delegations over, and you know, this Russia, um, this Russia, <laughs> this Kazakh Gate scandal was very embarrassing and concerning um, to Austin on President Nazarbayev, and they would just openly say, you know, can't you make this thing go away, right? I mean, come on, and say, no, the Justice Department has its own rules and norms and procedures and we're independent and, and so forth. So if that separation is eroded, I think we're in a, in a, in a much different world um, given the kind of primacy and extraterritorial power the U.S. has. On Ukraine, I mean, I think, you know, there is this, I think, temptation to believe that all is lost. It's just going to be a cycle of never-ending um, sort of hopes, um, sort of unfulfilled. I would say the bright side is that you have an incredibly uh, invigorated civil society in Ukraine, right? Arguably one of the most robust in the post-Soviet space and, you know, becoming stronger. You have teams of anti-corruption activists, investigative journalists um, who have done an excellent job in publicizing this. And you have this pioneering tool of an anti-corruption court um, whose fate I think is still up in the air. But if this truly becomes independent, and there is a big push now um, for it to maintain its independence away um, for presidential interference, that could become a tool. Now, all these things, are they going to be silver bullets? No, but I actually see sustained engagement in Ukraine you know, as, 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 as a positive, even though it is sort of you know, pushing the boulder back up. Um, I would agree there. So I'll, uh, yeah, I'll leave it there. Okay. Yes, first question. Um, first of all, thank you very much for a very interesting um, seminar and very interesting presentations. My name is Adina Trunk and I um, work at International Idea um, together with my colleague Catalina who asked a question about money in politics earlier. I have two questions and you can decide who is best uh, to answer them. The first one is linking back to the title of the seminar. And I was just wondering, um, based on your experience, do you see any particular characteristics with corruption in um, Eurasia or in post-socialist um, countries? And that is the first question. And then um, if we're to look ahead, because you were describing the complexity uh, of corruption and how the different uh, actors are um, both intricated and integrated with each other and also over borders, um, what would be your three um, priorities for addressing um, corruption and, and how, for example, international organizations, but also maybe policymakers in, let's say, less corrupt countries, uh, what, what should their top priorities be to help or, or um, combat these, these challenges? Thank you. 
start this time. Uh, what are the char distinct characteristics in your rage? You know, it's a great question. It's it's one I've tried to think about. I'm not sure I have many good answers. Uh, I think one of them might be the timing of state formation and key state building, right? And the onset or the acceleration of globalization in the 90s, right? To me, the sort of confluence of the two explains probably more than this idea of a political culture or mentality or these kinds of things, why you get these just acute kinds of kleptocratic structures, why it is that entire families you know, systematically peel off assets, uh, uh, you know, privatize their revenue stream, camouflage them with shell companies, all with the sort of seeming consent of IFIs and the international community that's sort of advocating, you know, liberalize your capital accounts, right? So I think the speed of the economic transition and its uh, immersion in this kind of 1990s Washington consensus, all-out globalization, liberalization, that to me is what makes this experience, I would say distinct. I don't think it's unique. I think there's parts of West Africa too that are playing in similar ways. There, there's some other uh, countries that Sarah's expertise is much greater than, than mine on this. But, but, but that's, that's, that's what I see as, as, as sort of critical there. Um, I would love to see uh, more in terms of sort of what to do about this, I would love to see more interaction between um, Western activists and anti-corruption uh, crusaders on the one hand, facilitating uh, interactions with domestic activists about these Western enablers, right? Um, and, and, and here I think we, we, we can see some potential uh, interesting collaborations between uh, 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 say, you know, Ukrainian sort of civil society and Western journalists over, you know, the fate of some of these Yanukovych uh, accounts, right, and sort of the inner circle, right? The naming and shaming, I think, uh, is not perfect, but it goes a long way also um, to get out of this current dilemma that we're in that somehow we're telling you what to do. Why are you so corrupt? Stop being so corrupt. Look at us. And he's actually saying, well, yeah, we're looking at you. You guys have Trump. Right, and you have all these sort of, you're not a model. So we need, and I think it's a similar story in human rights though, I think actually the transparency norm is stronger than the human rights norm at the moment. But I think we need to get ourselves out of this idea of this kind of paternalistic interaction. And I think there's an opportunity with Trump to serve for anti-corruption crusaders to practice what they preach back home and abroad, right? And I think that would be sort of the start of this. Beyond that, I think there's some very practical measures um, that, uh, you know, that can be implemented certainly on the real estate front in terms of these registries, the program can be expect, uh, uh, expanded. No one should be able to pay all cash, right, for a purchase without it having to be recorded as a beneficial loaner. I mean, that just seems to me, you know, sort of common sense out there. Uh, and, you know, universities and think tanks and institutions of influence should fully disclose where their money comes from, and again, ascertain individuals, not shell companies. So there are just some, some very low-hanging fruit that we can do in the West, but what I would love to see is more partnership between the West and the region, right, and an acknowledgement there's actually some common challenges here and common nodes of the network to attack and spotlight.
Yeah, I wouldn't add to that last one, except just to go back for a second on Ukraine. And I, and I actually agree with you, Alex, that even though it may look um, depressing at the moment, like a, like a backslide from the moment of the Maidan revolution, there is something that went on and is going on in Ukraine that I actually think is an interesting and important model, which is the people power thing initially that was then backed up by a very sophisticated effort by active civil society to get at the kind of reforms, again, they may not have done as well as they wish they had, um, that, uh, you know, that are needed. So it's that kind of an articulated effort that includes mass action, but then a more sophisticated follow-on. And it's often difficult subsequently to mobilize the popular indignation or popular energy behind the more technical reform processes, but that really needs to be done. Um, uh, and just another point that's gonna sound really fuzzy, we all culturally, every single one of us needs to do something about this being the soul, you know, yardstick, right? And that means how do we function? Who do we honor? You know, do, you, you know, like how do we function in our everyday lives? Um, and I found there was an example in Nigeria where I went to go see a friend of mine who's an emir and a cop basically asked me for something. And rather than I kind of snickered and walked past him and didn't obviously give him anything. But I realized later that was a teaching moment. He could never have arrested, you know, like hauled me off to jail because he knew I was a pal of the emirs. I was safe. So I could have stopped me, Miss Anti-Corruption, didn't take advantage of this moment. I could have stopped and said, excuse me, did I just hear you asking for a bribe inside the emir's palace? I mean, I could have, right? And I feel like there actually are moments in each of our lives, almost daily, when we can, you know, change the cultural, it's again, the kind of, I want to say naming and shaming, we all can do that. We can change where we bank. We can change, you know, we can change what gasoline we buy even, not that that makes an, uh, a gigantic difference, but, uh, and I would really urge us all to, make ourselves a little more uncomfortable if we have to. It could be a little bit inconvenient. Golly gee, wouldn't that be tough? Um, on Eurasia, again, I think Alex's point on the timing is, re uh, the one thing I'd add to the timing is the ideological shift that happened also at the same time in favor of the private, you know, uh, concentration of capital. That that became like good. Greed is good, right? So you have a threefold thing, collapse of the system, the globalization, but the ideological underpinning of that particular version of globalization. But what I would actually say about Eurasia is what's really remarkable is not the distinctiveness, it's the opposite. All right. Hello, yes. yeah, uh, my name is Milan Lehoki, I'm an investigator I'm on uh, Eurasia. The notion of state and kleptocracy suggestive that 
the elites basically um, divide up the spoils, sort of, because they're the stronger ones, simply because they're stronger. How about, and I think it, it, it has a strong value uh, meaning, it's from our perspective in the Western liberal market-based um, democracies. They don't think like that. They think it's theirs. How about you look at Eurasia, not as a, well, these individual countries, also in the Caucasus. Look at them as private administered territories and take away their OECD status as a country. That's what they are. They're like mini, uh, like larger Monte Carlos and Monaco's. It's theirs. It's an oligarchic administered territory. It's not a state. It fails the statehood, taste, uh, sta uh, the statehood test. What is a state to provide? So on. It's a political science question. I mean, I it's think it's clear. an intriguing proposal, and it gets into the whole idea of sort of sanctioning and what types of sanctions get at the concerns of actual rulers, right? And so, on the one hand, you can say sanction an entire state, right? Stigmatize them for their particular sort of complicity in this. I'm not sure that would necessarily work, right? I mean, certain certain states, certain leaders are status-oriented, but what if the status comes from being stigmatized by the international community? I think that's actually the situation we're in in Russia, right? We're sort of, you know, heaping sort of Western opprobrium, right, into Moscow just fuels, I think, the Kremlin's narrative in many ways. But I do think there's a very interesting debate over what types of sanctions, and actually, I'd like to hear sort of... Well, I mean, I think it depends on the Central Asian country. I think it depends on, you know, what you count as sort of territorial. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily see it so stark. I mean, I would say some are virtual states, like Tajikistan, for instance, um, you know, where all this sort of takes place overseas and offshore. Um, others are more grounded. Um, autarkic with, with, with problems, certainly, in the case of an Uzbekistan or or Turkmenistan, in Kyrgyzstan, you do have this volatility and genuine sort of activism and attempt to sort of keep a government sort of uh, uh, accountable. So I, you know, I, I think there, there, there are different flavors there. But I do think there's an interesting debate to be had in this moment about corruption and individual sanctions, right? And I think whatever you think of Bill Browder, right, in terms of his role um, in the Magnitsky Act and whether you support it or oppose it, I think his reasoning is worth considering, right? And Browder's reasoning as a political theorist is, look, rulers don't particularly care about national sanctions because they can just externalize the costs onto their populations, right? So you're not really getting at them if you sanction countries. What do they care about? They care about moving their money overseas, and they care about their travel, and they care about uh, their family's travel and really the ability to school their kids overseas. Right? And so that's what you go after in the Browder world. Right? You sanction the ability of elites to be global citizens, to be global members of the international community. Now, I think where you know, the, the issue sort of you know, that one has to deal with was in, in passing something like the Magnitsky Act, well, you know, are you just sort of signaling out Russia right? when you, know, you have thousands and thousands of you know, Chinese plutocrats, for instance, sort of, you know, uh, operating in the same vein, but 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 I think as a matter of analysis, well, and now it's global. 
Yeah. Now it's now they've extended. That's right. That's right. And sort of the selectivity of it and so forth. But I think the analysis of it is very well worth considering in terms of, you know, know, what do you want to impact through the sanctioning? Okay. Um, We'll take two more questions and we'll take them at at the same time and then you can answer them. Uh, And unfortunately, we are running uh, uh, shortly out of, we'll be running out of time. So, yes. Uh, Yes. If the mic should be working, you could test it. Yes. Okay. Hi, my name is Catherine. Your comment about this idea of purchasing schools, travel brought up a factoid from Russia from the financial crisis 2014 to now, which is that price of bribes didn't move. It stayed constant in dollar terms, even though everything else changed. Um, And my question is for both of you about this connection between money and power, money for power, power for money. In our region of the world, kleptocracy and autocracy go hand in hand, and they're mutually reinforcing. Instead of fighting kleptocracy, should we also be fighting autocracy? And what sort of methods might be available to us to do that? Okay, and final question. Thank you so much. My name is Lena Johansson de Chateau. I work for the Swedish government's expert group for aid studies. Uh, So I would be interested to hear any experiences you have about uh, good examples of the role of donors, cooperation, in the framework of development cooperation. And as we in this seminar focus on Eurasia, I would be glad to hear those, but if you have others. So um, yeah, the role and and how you could um, successfully fight and and tools for fighting corruption in the framework of development cooperation. Thank you. Okay, you'll have about one minute for each question. Uh, on kleptocracy, autocracy, I think we've, I think autocracy was the focus for so many decades. And the presumption was that if you ended autocracy, you would, you know, all kinds of great things would automatically materialize. Um, now it's become sort of politically sensitive. You know, we say we're against autocracy, we, the West says it's against autocracy, but really it, it isn't. Um, the advantage of focusing on the kind of kleptocratic aspect of things is it you can at least make the argument that it's not in favor of regime change or focusing on ostensibly political issues. Now, of course, kleptocracy is deeply political, and so efforts to get at it without acknowledging that are also normally, you know, going to fail. But, um, yeah, so that's that on donors uh i have to say the track record is terrible it is really painfully bad the more i look at it the more i'm starting to see international development assistance and in particular development finance and that's what catherine and i were working on quite a bit um as a massive enabler these networks have understood that development dollars or kronos or euros uh, represent sometimes one of the most significant revenue streams and they have become incredibly um, sophisticated at at capturing it. And we are absolutely terrible at seeing that and we don't want to. So every time I try to make this case to development actors, um, what I get, so for example, I held an event um, on this type of issues uh, in in Washington for USAID and um, the narcotics and law enforcement, um, INL, Law Enforcement Affairs Bureau of State. 
And so who I wanted were the big programs at USAID. I wanted PEPFAR, which works on uh, HIV AIDS. I wanted Power Africa in the room. And instead, who I got were the anti-corruption people. Well, they get this, but you can't, if you offload as a development actor all of your corruption focus onto people who work on corruption and then you know and then it's about budgets and can they spend money on anti-corruption programs you're missing the boat the point is how does pepfar or how does and it's not just development it's also in this region it's eu money you know that's not explicitly coming out of uh, uh, the development arm of EU, but other types of EU programs that in every country in your region that I've been to, when I ask civil society actors what's the biggest enabler, they say EU money. Um, and just I know this is more than my one minute, but but the shocking thing for me is the um, uh, I want to say culture of trust that prevails among development actors. So do we have any Finns in the room? Okay, so I adore your country, all right? Now I am about to make an example of you, so I apologize because I absolutely adore your country. But I took a look, we took a look at FinFund. Again, if Finland isn't number one on Transparency International, it trades off with New Zealand, right? FinFund, um, for example, Finnish foreign ministry puts money into FinFund, which is a development bank. FinFund then invests that money either directly in projects or in the, one of the cases we looked at, they invest it in a fund, the Central American Mezzanine Infrastructure Fund, fund CAMEF. Once that happens, number one, the Finnish population doesn't get to know how much of their money got put in that fund. This is development money and it's secret how much went into the fund. Second, I can't find out what are the development requirements that are placed on the management of that fund because, oh, we're only one of several investors in the fund and we can't disclose the contract without, you know, uh, because we're only one member. Then we find out who is actually managing the fund. Well, it's the same guys who are managing the money that belongs to the Sultan of Brunei. Now, exactly how much development outcome do you think you're getting? So the problem on development is, it's once again, quantity of money versus type of outcome. And what I heard again and again doing this work was, we foreign ministries just can't mobilize enough money to make a development impact. And I'm like, huh. uh, surely the experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan show that infinite money often actually produces retarded development. <laughs> All right, uh, Alex, final remarks. Uh, yeah, so my sort of instructive example would be the small Central Asian state of Kyrgyzstan. Uh, during the Afghanistan campaign, right, where Kyrgyzstan was held up as being more free and more open, which it is, um, yeah, relatively speaking. Um, so as USAID is running all of these anti-corruption programs, good governance efforts, cleaning up the business environment, trainings, education, um, the U.S. is flying military operations out of the Manas base in Bishkek, and what Manas needs is three Olympic uh, swimming pools worth of jet fuel each day to carry out its refueling operations, um, which were given 
um, to these mysterious companies registered in Gibraltar with no bid contracts, with specifications that were carved out by various sort of Kyrgyz entities that only these companies um, sort of fulfilled. So, you know, while we're doing all this anti-corruption work, billions of dollars are literally being poured into a black hole in the base. And everyone knows this, right? And so it's not tangential to say you can compartmentalize this because part of the complaint is the double standards, is the hypocrisy, right? That you're like doing all this and you're, you know, making us do this project and whatever. And look at what your military is doing. You don't care about that. And so the irony is we had all these interagency task force, which I'm sure Sarah observed many times uh, in action in Afghanistan, anti-corruption efforts and so forth. You know, the whole access to Afghanistan <laughs> rested on payoffs to the elites of sort of the surrounding countries. And I think in this global network, these maintaining these compartmentalizations are really difficult. You can't do it anymore. People know and it gets reported. And so again, you know, it you know, I would sort of question the ability to maintain the segmented project. You know, I also wonder whether the kind of log frame approach to these projects also doesn't contribute it, but that's a much broader type of question and maybe we can have another day. Um, but 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 certainly the you know the mixed messages are enormously damaging to anti-corruption efforts. Thank you both uh, of you uh, for excellent presentations and great Q and A. Uh, I'm not sure if we walk from here clinically depressed or not, but we certainly have a lot of you know things to to think about and work on. Um, work to do. This is up to us to yes. counter every single one of us. Thank you. With a round of applause, we conclude. Um, and I can also mention um, the corruption theme has not been finished here at the Institute. And so look out on the website for more information about seminars on this topic. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.